When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hey everyone and welcome to this special episode of The Wire Stripped. Uh, I'm here with Dave. Hello Kobe, this is a special one, isn't it? It is a special one. It's um, a big one. They already know, they've read the title, but why don't you, te- <laughs> why don't you tell them who we got to talk to? We got to talk to David Simon. This is part one of a multiple part series of episodes where we talk to David Simon. And this is part one. And if you're a fan of the show... You know this is the creator. You know this is the guy behind the whole show. And he was great, Dave, wasn't he? Oh, my God, yeah. We had an amazing chat with him. Um, all four of us, the full wire strip team, hopped on. Uh, we got nine, We were lucky to get 90 minutes with, with David. He was very generous with his time. And um, so, yeah, we've split this over multiple parts. And uh, we cover everything throughout the, the duration of it from, um, you know, his reflections on the wire, uh, Kobe wrangled some um, some former cast members who who left some interesting questions. Yeah, um, and um, and we covered the, his new show uh, that him and George uh, Pelicanos have just uh, written and released. We own this city. Yeah, well, I think without further ado, let's head over to David and find out first of all, pretty much how how is he? Uh, thank you for having me. I'm fine. We met David a few years ago. When you came to London, when you had you were disappointed with the with President Forty Five, I should say, oh, being taken office first, when he was first elected. Yeah, yeah, and uh, we, we, meet, we meet in the pub. Did we we met in the pub and at the Crown. At the Crown, indeed, yes. So middle of Soho, we met in the pub in the Crown, and yeah. you bought everyone a drink, and you refused to have a drink. Um, and we, well, I, had drink. I had one drink. I would, yeah, I, I wouldn't let him buy me a drink. That's right. Well, we, we bought a few of us in there cl- clubbed together to buy you one drink um, to say to say thank you for the wire. Um, but we I was won- apologizing for our new president. Yes. Well, he's gone now. <laughs> but well, the not really. Not really. Yeah. That fucker has a long shadow. Um, but uh, yeah, no, that was right after he had just finished insulting your mayor hmm. in London at the time. Um, and, and he and he would he would go far from there in terms of denigrating much but yeah i remember that i remember being very ashamed to be american in your country i think we want to start by first of all saying you know you've been through we've all been through a pandemic you you guys have come off the back of president 45 i don't want to mention his name um and we've we've suffered losses in the wire in the wire family with um michael k williams most recently which hits us hard and also um with yourselves most recently first question we want to ask really is how how are you doing david how are you doing well, I'm okay. It's, uh, you know, 
Um, we've actually had uh, 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 an immediate sadness here this week. You probably haven't heard about it, but um, Denise Francine Boyd, Fran Boyd, who was the um, uh, the uh, struggling mother in the um, in the corner in the book, and then uh, was depicted by Candy Alexander in the miniseries. Mm. She passed away uh, suddenly on on Tuesday. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, it was, um, it's really been kind of devastating for the family. Uh, you know, I've stayed friends and close with, with uh, Fran and her family. And, and so we're a little bit wrecked here in Baltimore. Fran meant a lot to us. David, we had um, a, lot of, a lot of our um, listeners and uh, a lot of people online, we, we asked them so, uh, sort of to round out some questions for you. Um, so we, we, we're going to pepper in a few, and, and one we, we thought was a nice way to kick off was from uh, uh, from Reddit. It was from user. This is going to be fun reading the usernames out. Uh, T T E H thirteen thirty seven world, um, and they wanted to ask you um, the, slightly off topic, but they were curious what your favorite TV shows are. Name oh, as many or as few as you like. I, I don't watch a lot. Um, I. I... I was not a really a big consumer of TV um, before I fell into it. Um, I, I mean, all time favorites. Uh, God, you can't peel me away from the, the old honeymooners episodes. <laughs> nice. Roger Meadows. You cannot take me away from those. Um, I don't know. I mean, mostly comedy, uh, old movies. I, I watch old movies more than I watch television. I will say, um, whenever people ask me to recommend another TV show, I say The Sopranos, which I think is, you know, beautifully done. Um, I think uh, um, there's a show in, in uh, Canadian broadcasting that I, I always recommend that I, I just love. Uh, it's called uh, Slings and Arrows. It's basically a three season kind of a dramedy more of a comedy but it's 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 like hour long it's really well done it's 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 a shakespeare repertory company in canada that is struggling and um the conceit of the piece is that every time they they try to put on a play if they try to put on macbeth basically the outline of macbeth starts to present itself within the shakespeare company of actors so you have the, the play within the play if you do hamlet you know the uh the 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 artistic director is haunted by the ghosts of his nominal father, the previous artistic director who is now dead. I mean, they, 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 you know, it's basically having a lot of fun with Shakespeare and it's so well written that it, mm -hmm. it gives writers envy. So, I mean, I, I like obscure things. I like the, um, the, the German show Heimat about the small town uh, between the wars and, and up to the, you know, Heimat and Heimat too, they were great. People have to like people have to get in front of me and shake me and say you have to watch this. <laughs> a lot of time when they do, uh, you know, I, they're wrong. Um, I don't, um, but sometimes they're right. And you know, if, when enough people basically say no, this is special, um, then I find it. Well, let's go to one of the first um, listener. What are the first questions from? Uh, so we should say to the fans we have and the listeners now we have a fair few questions from. Uh, voices that you will and will not recognize um, from The Wire. And this is the first one I'm going to play to you, David. Um, he introduces himself. Hi, David. It's Delaney. I have a question I've been meaning to ask you for years, and I know you have the answer. In The Wire, who is 
the greatest Baltimore Oriole of all time? Is it A, Glenn Davis, or B, Jeffrey Hammonds? I've had this question ever since I was at the game, August 1st, 1993, where this question was first posed. Please, David, the world needs to know. I won't speak that ill of Jeffrey Hammonds. Uh, he was a prospect who didn't pan out. But the, the, the conceit of Delaney's joke is, <laughs> it, is that these were two, um, these were two uh, roads that didn't quite go where the Orioles franchise wanted. We're talking American baseball now. Yeah. Glenn Davis is really I, Glenn Davis is really a remarkable name to bring up without causing offense in Baltimore. <laughs> I'm crushed just hearing the name. There was a point, I can't remember the year now, but it was a critical point in the history of my baseball franchise that I root for in Baltimore, where we traded three pitchers, uh, three players who went on, we traded four, but three of them went on to be all-stars. Um, uh, Pete Hornish, uh, Steve Finley, the outfielder, and Kurt Schilling, who won, won the World Series for the Red Sox. We traded them for a guy named Glenn Davis, whose sole claim to fame was he hit a few homers for Baltimore, then got his, uh, I think his jaw broken or his cheek broken in a bar fight and never played Major League Baseball again. We, that was a trade we made to the Houston Astros. It was a trade that like, destroyed the franchise for a generation. So, you know, you mentioned the name Glenn Davis to a Baltimorean, as, De- as Delaney, who's from Washington, just did. <laughs> Those are fighting words. That's, <laughs> he, he is just, he, you know, it's on now between me and him. I'm really glad you explained the context of that because I had no clue what he was talking about there. If you want to argue the great Orioles of all time, it's Brooks Robinson, Frank Robinson, Jim Palmer, Mike Cuellar. Uh, I, I would ask our, our Baltimorean listeners our to, to verify what David's saying at this point. Yes. <laughs> send, send us your own all-timers. <laughs> let's, let's get this going. Uh, you can tweet David. I'm sure he will respond immediately. I mean, I, I can give you, I can, I'll write an epic sonic, sonic right now to Brooks Robinson, <laughs> third baseman of the 60s and 70s. But um, mentioning Glenn Davis is just, that's just cruel. That's just cruel. I, I, I thought more of Delaney before at this moment. Shots fired, Delaney. Yeah. Well, let's head to talking about the wire. It's it's coming up to the twentieth anniversary of season one. How how do you feel generally about the show? Um, reflecting on it now, I'm glad it stuck around. You know, so little in pop culture uh, has any uh, staying power. Hmm. Happy for that. It allowed me. Um, it's late. The late attention that was given to it after we finished. Um, was a delight and it allowed me to continue a career with HBO and continue you know, telling stories that I wanted to tell. And, uh, that was improbable. I mean, you know, when I started in TV, people didn't watch you on the night you were on, people didn't watch you. Mm. Um, and that changed. And, um, TV became more of a lending library and HBO became, uh, more dependent on their back catalog. And suddenly, it was plausible to continue to give me money to make television. Um, so it's been great. Um, you know, I, I, I'm often asked if the show achieved what I wanted it to achieve. And I would say, well, no, it, you know, our, the basic argument was to end the drug war yeah. um, and the drug war kept going. So, you know, but I guess if you wait around long enough for a television show to uh, get some politician to pass a better law, you're going to be waiting a long time. So. That, that was a little bit ambitious for any any uh, 
any popular entertainment. I do think it's had a fundamental impact on me. And obviously in starting the podcast, I wouldn't start a podcast about a show that I, I thought little of. Um, but in watching The Wire, it's fundamentally changed my view on the war on drugs and how a lot of systems work and how you know, politics work, for example. And that for me elevates it so much, elevates it so much above the standard TV, which is a lot of it is popcorn. Um, even if it's something a bit more highbrow, it's still, uh, you know, past the time popcorn stuff. But this is something that was a fundamental shift in how I thought. So I do feel that people will, you know, hopefully the future generations will take on board learnings from shows like The Wire. Well, that's um, good. That's good. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think that's probably the best we can claim for it is that maybe it turns some people into thinking a little differently about the drug wars so the next time some shit-spitting politician got up there to talk about being tough on crime or tough on drugs or clearing the corners or filling prisons that, you know, fewer people believed him or would vote for him. It, it's probably an incremental, um, it's probably an incremental process over generations. Mm. You know, we, we built this stuff, we built this stuff over 50 years, the drug war uh, in my country. And um, it's probably going to take some time to, to take it apart. You, you actually put that into the wire yourself, right? That's a key moment at the end of season three where Carcetti gets up there and gives that speech you're talking about, right? About being even tougher on, yeah, on I mean, drugs. It, it, was, it was funny because a lot of people, that was funny because a lot of people, you know, we did all the things you do when somebody makes a heroic, you know, we'll fight on the beaches speech. <laughs> um, I say to you, Brits. Um, and, 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 they, uh, and, you know, that's what he was doing. He was basically saying, I, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm going in a war against what's happening here. And it's, you're supposed to know it's the exact wrong thing, but it's the exact right thing for his career. So the camera move is that slow crawl in, you know, his face getting bigger as he speaks with more and more passion. And you realize he's about to ascend in his career and he's saying the exact wrong thing. And because the camera cues were such that, American audiences, I think all audiences are attuned to that. That camera trick basically says, this is my hero and he's talking hmm, and yeah. saying something important. I think he carried a lot of people with him. They were like, you know, yeah, all right, Coquetti's going to solve this. this is, that, uh, that's the risk, isn't it? It's quite, it's quite ironic in a way. Well, some what do the they audience. say? You know, everybody who ever tried to make an anti-war film ended up making a war film. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's part of the problem. Uh, we have a next question from um, Chad. David, in hindsight, having produced such an iconic show, take us inside of something that you were blindsided by as a result of having produced the show that you didn't see coming. Can I just say, you've, you've managed to pick some of the people, some of the actors with the best voices in the whole of acting. <laughs> Dad's voice is glorious, isn't it? Insane. <laughs> you know? You know, I hope when I'm slipping off into the um, into the great beyond, and I'm, you know, I hope it's a long time from now, and I'm, you know, I hope my um, my family and friends are all gathered around my bed to say goodbye, and it's been a great life. I hope the last words in my ear, telling me I can close my eyes and quit, are going to be from Chad Colt. <laughs> I hope they just usher him in the room and go, Chad, you're up. Yes, send him out. That voice is just, you know. What do you, what do you want him to say, David? What are, what are the what are your <laughs> final things? It almost doesn't matter. It almost doesn't matter, just as long as he says it. Um, 
What took me by surprise? Well, I just, you know, I don't know. Um, okay, I can say the big thing that took me by surprise. And it, it certainly influenced how we made Treme, the, mm. the, the continuing series that followed The Wire. Um, I was surprised that people, I lived in Baltimore. I'm vested in the city. I still live there. I, I, live, in, I live in Baltimore. I'm, uh, you know, sent my kids to school there. And, um, I, I was astounded that there were viewers who watched five seasons of that show or maybe didn't watch. Maybe they watched a little of it and that was the problem. But they came to the conclusion that the show was speaking about only Baltimore and that Baltimore was this disastrous place that um, like, why didn't everybody just move? Why do you, why doesn't everybody leave? Why would, why, why would anyone try to endure here? And not only did we not feel that way, but our argument was about the, ne the necessity of the city of everybody of, of cities being the future of, of humanity. You know, we, our premise, I shouldn't even say our argument, you know, we're all going to live in cities or metropolitan areas. 80% of us do now globally. And that's only, that number is only going to go up and we're only going to be more compacted. We're only going to be more pluralistic. You know, the, the, the smells from the apartment down the hall are going to be food that is not your culture. It's somebody else. The, the prayers from the, the, the corner mosque or synagogue or church or whatever are, are, are going to be, um, not your prayers. We're all going to either learn to live together in increasingly compacted urban areas or, or humanity is going to fail. So the idea that the city, the, 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 that we were critiquing the city to the point of saying everyone can just get up and walk away seemed to be the most infantile response. But there was a lot of that kind of writing in the wake of, man, Baltimore screwed up. Why don't they all move to Philadelphia? You know, have you been to North Philadelphia? You know, I mean, it was, it was a really um, myopic response to what we did we picked baltimore because we lived there i've been a reporter there ed the policed it the other writers were you know that from there we we spoke about the, the the specific but we were speaking about the general about the general condition of 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 at least the west in terms of you know learning to live with urbanity and, and its problems and i was really shocked by how infantile some of the some of the um, responses to it. I, I didn't see that one coming at all. I was like, really? You know, you thought that's what we were, that's, that's where we were going. That this is all about getting, you know, it's all about the one bad city in America that can't figure it out. Yeah. But there was a lot of that. I mean, those, those are the viewers that kind of didn't get it, but I think it's clear, as you said, from the sort of lasting popular culture impact that the show has had, that many people kind of did get it. Why, why do you think that the show has had kind of such a profound impact and has had an enduring legacy? Well, I think uh, you're right. I mean, I guess I'm speaking, I didn't think anybody would go there. I, I really thought, you know, look, look, we made a show in Baltimore, you know, we got the street names right. It's not about Baltimore. Um, so you're right. You got me speaking about the minority. I think the reason it's had a lasting impact is there were sufficient people on the other side of the fence who understood that it was metaphorical or allegorical, I should say, to, um, to other places in the world. Uh, and then also a lot of the stuff was, was, was metaphorical in terms of um, other problems and, and our, our own incapacity to not only recognize our problems in, in this postmodern misadventure that we're on, but to, um, but, to, but to 
certainly respond to those problems. You know, this, this seems to be increasingly beyond our, you know, our capacities for self-government are, are diminishing. We look mm. at the paralysis and, and division of, of my government, look at the same thing that has happened in, in, in the UK. They say, you know, you're, you're not being well-led. You know, sorry to tell you. <laughs> Correct. Sorry, sorry to let that one go. <laughs> just, Dave, you're, Dave, you're, not Dave sending, you're not sending your best up the pipe. You know? I, I, I just literally moved back to Ireland to to escape <laughs> to escape the Tories. No, you know, but you know, the, 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 there, there's a, there's been a um, a retreat to authoritarianism mm-hmm. all over uh, the globe. There's been a uh, uh, a wealth of disinformation. You know, you can't govern yourselves if you you don't. If, if truth no longer exists and, and we've entered a post-truth dynamic. I mean, all these things can be felt in, in what we were trying to write about, about a city that can no longer recognize its own problems, much less solve them. So I think that resonated and it resonated in a way that maybe to a greater extent, we were trying to get it so that people in St. Louis and Cleveland and, and, uh, and um, you know, Los Angeles could maybe tune into Baltimore and, and feel uh, some connective tissue to the story. That, that, was, that was the extent of our aspiration. I was pretty shocked when the, the show, um, and you guys may not know, be aware of your own chronology, but the show hit bigger in the UK first than it did in, in, in the States. Uh, and, and you guys became uh, intensely involved in following the, um, the themes and the arguments of the show way before um, it, 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 it got any traction uh, across the water. And I think probably that's almost geographic, sort of in the nature of the UK as I've experienced it, you know, not to tell you about your own joint, but um, you, have, you have a country about 40 million people and 20 million of them are oriented towards one city, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. greater, the greater metropolitan area of London. Yeah. So, you know, the wire was a mer- word of mouth vibe and word of mouth really works if, everybody's facing in the same direction, you know, talking in the same pub. Um, it, it was, it's harder in the U S we have 330 million and there, you know, we have various metro areas, various regions. Um, there are some cities that don't experience the same, uh, dynamics all the time. Uh, there are cities that are differently oriented in, in my country. Um, we're a little bit more, uh, spread out. And so word of mouth doesn't quite work as quickly or as well. So what happened was, um, Americans would, Americans would, it was really funny. American celebrities, you know, actors and stuff, they'd go over to England to do publicity or to shoot something or whatever. And they'd be interviewed on the BBC. And, and, and the guy would just want to talk about the wire. And they'd be like, <laughs> what happened? You know, like, no, I haven't seen it. Maybe <laughs> I mean, people would call me afterwards and say, do you know they're, they've kind of gone, gone a little crazy over there for your show? And I'm like, no. And, and, but after a while, it was pretty obvious that you guys were attending to it better than we were. So I remember yeah. Char- Charlie Brooker was really driving it as well. That, that guy. Yeah. I love it. That guy. I owe that guy a lot. You know, I do. Yeah. I mean, he, he championed the show so early and so hard. Um, when I finally met him at some, we were doing some film, but I can't remember what it was, but it was, I, I was in London and I finally met this guy who had been pounding the pavement for the wire. And I did the only thing you do in, in Baltimore when you meet somebody who's like, you know, a landsman, you know, if you know the Yiddish phrase. Uh, I, I hugged them. I, I was like, hey, <laughs> hey, 
Brilliant. You know, I gave him the old Baltimore, you know, you know, and, and he looked at me like, you know, it was, it was literally like, I, I don't know what I, I'd done something. So not British, you know, so. <laughs> we, cool. um, we, I've spoken with Charlie Brooke about he, cause he did a documentary um, about the wire. We've asked him to come on the show. Maybe he'll, maybe he'll come on and, and be a voice for one of the coming seasons. Okay. For me, ask him about the hug. Cause I know that the hug freaked him out. <laughs> yeah, we'll okay. ask him about the hook um yeah. another person who claims to uh, well was one of one of the big champions about the wire in the uk was is someone that, who tom wally actually works with uh, a journalist called ellen ellen e jones um we asked her to contribute a question but she didn't have time today but she did say she did ask a question by text um what are your thoughts on prospects for meaningful police reform versus abolition uh, that's what she wants to know. I guess this is this is going deep into where we, I guess we'll talk about we own the city. And I do yeah. want to come back to the city aspects of things because there's a great question for one of our fantastic listeners, a professor who teaches uh, a part of his course on the wire. But just going back to um, that's you know, a good question, and I, I love yeah. an, I love I love answering it because ultimately mm. um, that's why we did the, the new show. That's why mm. we went back for six episodes on on we own the city, which is um, I'm really useless to anybody who thinks you can adorn uh, policy with a single or singular slogan and win. Um, you can't be tough on crime. You can't be hard on drugs. You can't fill the prisons. You can't back the blue. You can't do any of those things and have police reform. Nor, nor can you pretend that you can just park the, the radio cars and abolish the police or defund the police as an entity and replace them with a, you know, a cadre of social workers, you know, I'm sorry, not, not in a country that is as fundamentally divided economically and, and has, uh, um, the vulnerabilities, you know, as, as, by the way, gun saturated as Mm. this and expect, um, uh, peace to break out because you've put well-meaning people on, on the corners without the powers of power of arrest or the power of subpoena. Um, those phrases on either side, uh, abolish or defund or back the blue or thin blue line are destructive. And, and, and nobody who's, who's spouting them is going to ever contribute to a, uh, to a actual reform somewhere between those two things uh, is the nature of what reform has to be. And I'm convinced after covering this stuff for, um, 20 years as a journalist, and then you know, after continuing to to attend to it to make the television shows, I'm convinced it's about um, it's about changing the mission. It's about changing the police mission, and I think the the things that have become so brutalized, so destructive, so um, so uh, the, the things of which I have the greatest despair, they all have their DNA in the American drug war. And drug mm. drug prohibition has excused the collapse of our uh, civil liberties, the destruction of the Fourth Amendment of our Bill of Rights of our Constitution. Um, it has taught generations of police how not to police, um, how to go in people's pockets, how to make stats, how to lock people up. But while they've been doing this and getting better and better at doing that, which is a meaningless act of, of non-police work, um, the arrest rates for murder, for rape, for robbery, for burglary, for assault uh, have declined uh, dramatically because that those things rely on police work and a lot of skill sets that really, truly matter. And if you don't 
if you don't reward those skill sets, if you don't promote them, if you don't promote the police who are capable of them, if you don't pay the police to perform those jobs rather than you pay them to fill the wagons with drug users, then you get a police department, a police agency that can only police the drug war and they can't actually solve crime or make, make the city safer. And that's what Baltimore has done. So we are now, I'm now in, in, in the most violent Baltimore that's ever existed in terms of the crime rate. Um, and we have a bunch of police who know how to go into people's pockets, run up on the corner. They don't need the, they don't need probable cause. They just, you know, you're, 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 Hey, you're in the corner, you're on my corner. My corner's indicted. Let me yeah. see what pockets that's not you know you can't take that guy and put him in front of a, a dead body and say solve that <laughs> you know yeah. address that you know he doesn't have the skill set and and that's the police departments that we created over 50 years i mean it's been one generation knowing less teaching the next generation to know even less and so when i say this to people about you know oh listen you know you think you can do without the police department after after the Freddie Gray death and after the uh, funeral and the uprising that followed and the, and the violence in the street uh, between police and, and protesters and demonstrators, um, when, when following, after that, there were, there were uh, police indicted for things that I think they should have been indicted for, which is to say a negligence case in the back of a wagon where, where Gray died. And they were indicted for some things that were just political fodder. Um, you know, they were indicted for... Uh, falsely arresting Gray when in fact, you know, it wasn't the greatest police work in the world to arrest him for running from you and having a, a small pen knife. But that's what they did. And they, they were not going to be convicted of that because that was a legal arrest by, by, by the Supreme Court standards of, of probable cause. You, know, you can argue that, but you can't argue it with the Supreme Court of the United States. So she charged those cops or a state's attorney. And all the police stayed in their cars and they stopped doing police work in protests. And the arrest rates nosedive by about 60%. Mm-hmm. So we actually had an experiment of defund or abolish the police. We actually experimented with that in Baltimore in a unintended way. And the murder rate went from 220 people a year to about 350. So apparently, you know, much as it sounds like a great slogan and a cool slogan, abolish the police or defund the police actually means something if it was actually undertaken. I'm very much into defunding the drug war and taking that money. And I would give that money to social agencies and I would give it to drug treatment and I would give it to job training. That'd be great. You you wouldn't do any harm. But defund policing? No. We tried that in Baltimore. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I want to go back to the, the city's aspects. Um, one of our one of our fantastic um, listeners, like I say, is a, is a chap called uh, Professor Ro- Russell Moat. He's also got a great voice, so be prepared, uh, David. Um, <laughs> he's a professor at uh, North Carolina State University and author of a book 
which is um, called The Geographies of Threats and the Production of Violence, colon, The City and the State Between Us. Uh, so he's got a question for you. David, as a longtime follower of so much of your work, both in terms of writing work as well as um, television, um, and especially some of your interviews and lectures, you've talked about the importance of cities. I've also used The Wire as a point of focus in the class, talking about the failures of cities and both state and federal um, policies and the um, failure of those policies. Um, so with each of your shows, the city is also a main character, whether people recognize this or not. Even Generation Kill bobs and weaves through the destruction of various cities in Iraq. Uh, why is the city such an important focus for you? Um, how do they, cities, work as a vehicle to tell the story of uh, policy failure and expanding fractures of a society? And what do we get wrong in understanding the story of the city that The Wire and you were trying to tell us? Thank you for your time. That That is one of the better voices I've heard. Uh, this is Chad Coleman asked the question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, after all, weak and thin. Uh, I admit that. I went that fully. Uh, Russell Moore. How, how do we compete with that? Uh, no. that, was, that, that was, I believe, the, the adjective that's coming to me is sonorous. That was a <laughs> beautiful voice. Um, anyway, uh, Professor Moet has asked an elemental question, which is, um, what are we trying to say about cities? And I, I started to, I think we talked about it a little bit earlier, mm. which is that we have no choice. We're not going back to some agrarian ideal of, of what, you know, um, what, what viable life in, in, on this planet is going to be. We're either going to learn the city um, and we're going to, we're going to prevail in the city or we're going to fail as a species, you know, never mind the United States or, or, or any particular society. This is, you know, after World War II, Karachi, Pakistan had 400,000 people. It's got 20 million now. Mm. That's where we're going. We either figure this out or we fail. And it sounds like I'm saying, you know, we're, we're, I'm consigning us to a lesser future, uh, human beings to a lesser future, but I'm not because it's the, it's some of the most extraordinary and delightful things that have ever come out of the human mind have come out of the... Um, um, the, the polycultural mix of, of urbanity. Um, and we tried to say this in the second, in the next show, which was Treme, where, you know, um, you guys may, okay. What, what is my country given the world um, that matters? It's, you know, I'm not trying to be Socratic with you, but I'll answer my own question. I was, I, oh, you, did you want us to answer that? <laughs> yeah, no, hot dogs. I, I was going to say iPhone. Um, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, hot dogs in the iPhone. Very good. Uh, <laughs> thanks. Thanks. Um, I would say... Um, we gave you Shakespeare. It, um, just, just right, that. you did. You did. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, uh, in any event, we, uh, I would say the, the, the three things we, I, we... By the way, can't be motion pictures. Does, that belongs to the Germans. Yeah. You know, we really had to drag Germans over to Hollywood in order to like have Hollywood. So I'm not even crediting us with that. <laughs> um, but I'd say probably the four things that are uniquely American are a, a constitutional democracy based along the idea of certain inalienable rights that are first enumerated and are not subject to popularism, and then representative government sort of grafted on top of that. Ours isn't working so well right now, 
but our premise I think was pretty interesting. And, and that one, you know, that one at least went out into the world as argument. The second thing I would say is um, we gave you African-American music, which mm. only happens in, in an eight square block area of New Orleans um, at a particular point in the late 19th century when a bunch of brass bands uh, from the military are getting off the boats after the Spanish-American War, and they all want to get laid, and they all want to sell their brass instruments so they have money for the whorehouses in, um, in Storyville. And so there's a, you know, you can basically pick up a trumpet or a coronet for about five bucks. And, you know, 15 years later, Louis Armstrong is playing, you know, West End Blues. <laughs> I mean, you know, that only happens because of, um, you know, I mean, to be, to be more serious about it, it only happens because of flatted third and seventh notes from West Africa being sung and, and appreciated in Congo Square um, in the, in the, in, you know, in the 19th century, um, in, you know, periods before emancipation and being coupled with European musical traditions that had come from, I mean, it, it's, it's, it, you know, it, it is what the city does best. It takes disparate people and it creates new art, new culture, new realities, new cuisine, um, the city, when it works, is glorious. And uh, and so I'd say African-American music, the, the third and fourth things I'd say are um, uh, the musical, the stage music. <laughs> and then the fourth thing I would say is baseball, but that's we basically only penetrated the Pacific Rim. You know, we, we, we aren't, we're, we're waiting yeah. for soccer. You know, I'm, I'm speaking to Europeans. If I said that in <laughs> Taiwan or Korea or yeah. Japan, they would be like, yeah, uh, baseball. But um, no, you know, that's a partial sell. So, I mean, it comes down to that. So the reason we went to, the reason we saw an opportunity with Treme was after we finished The Wire, it felt like people had disparaged the idea of the city or thought, said the city was in some way um, the inevitable de degraded state of, of, of peopledom in, in my country. You know, they, they, they took it as a critique of the city as an ideal which I didn't like at all. And um, I, the response to that bit of criticism was to do Treme and say, look, here's a city that's completely wiped out. 80% of it goes underwater. People can't figure out how to stay away and they can't figure out how to abandon their traditions because they understand that the city has its own life force that is a result of really disparate cultures being compacted together. I mean, New Orleans is an extraordinary place for that reason. So... Um, yeah. David, are there any other, I think that's a, a, you know, that's a great example of, you know, holding up the positive aspects of a city. Are there any other cities internationally or elsewhere in America that, that you, that you would hold up as sort of, you know, a positive? I, I love so many cities. Uh, listen, a lot of them have unique uh, handles on wealth that, that can't be replicated. I mean, it's fair to say that, you know, a certain amount of wealth is always going to be concentrated in London or New York or Washington or San Francisco, um, to a lesser extent to Chicago. Um, but like certain cities are first tier cities in that they have their own unique economies. They either have the main markets, main financial markets of their countries, um, which is a 
profound impact, obviously. Uh, or they have unique economies, like like Washington is a federal city where you know real estate values um, never fail because every four years somebody's coming in and needs a new mansion. Um, so like there's an overlay of you know West West Los Angeles never fails because the entertainment industry is um, recession proof. Um, you know we may we you know we may starve ourselves to death, but we're never going to be not entertained. <laughs> that's who you know it's just really terrifying but um there are cities that have unique um economies that, that can't be replicated elsewhere um and then there's a lot of second tier cities that are vulnerable uh to things like deindustrialization you know rust the rust belt in my country you know obviously there are places in europe that are very very similar uh, in your country it would be uh you know the, the cities in the north in manchester newcastle like that. I mean, I've, I've been to I've been to cities that I I felt like they were Baltimore's, and I've loved them for that in, in your country. Um, I I've, like just I moved out to Man- I've just moved out to Manchester from uh, from, <laughs> from London. Did you? Yeah, did you? Yeah, I'm. <laughs> yeah. You're you're there to save it. I am. I am the king in the north. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I, I mean, listen. I I I like those places. Those places, yeah. you know, those places remind me of um, those second tier American cities that have. That basically relied on blue collar labor and, and factories and, and industrialization, and, and now they're trying to find their own way. They don't have the artifice of a New York or a, um, you know, people were talking to me years ago about when I was a police reporter about why did New York, why was New York able to reduce crime so much? Why, how could they, is Giuliani right? Was it just about like, you know, arresting everybody who stepped off the pavement the wrong way? I was like, no, you know, it was about a 30 year run up of Wall Street where they rebuilt the entire, you know, when I in the seventies, when I was working in New York uh, as a kid, um, I went to Tompkins Square to buy weed, mm. and, uh, and they sold me oregano. And I walked away really happy that they hadn't killed me. And I went, <laughs> I, went I went and smoked my um, cooking spice because I, I felt like I, I, I had won the battle somehow that I wasn't dead. Um, I mean, New York was a dangerous place in, in the seventies. Mm. The only thing that can mug you around Tompkins Square now is a, is a is a three-star restaurant um they rebuilt most of manhattan and a lot of the outer boroughs with with raw wealth that was that was you know the wall street money had to go somewhere and it was gonna it went to you know, new york rose it became became tough to be poor in new york people still have to do it but they live further and further out and they're at the margins but that's not true in you know, baltimore or philadelphia or um, cleveland or st louis and so those cities have to make their way. So, I mean, I love those places. You know, so if I mention a bunch of like, oh, it's so much fun to go to London or Madrid or Paris, you know, it is. But these are these are cities with the distinct advantage of controlling their country's markets mm-hmm. and um, and having access to all of the um, elemental tourist dollars that that, that accrue. And and there, are, you know, there are other places that are just beautiful. I mean, people are going to go to San Francisco. And, you know, because it's a beautiful place. But if you're asking me, like, are cities doing stuff right? Yeah, there's places where cities are, you know, I mean, I can can name some places where I think the city planning has been excellent. Pittsburgh, I think. If you go to Pittsburgh, you look around downtown and the way they've used the baseball park and the bridges, and, you know, that's, it's an amazing place. I mean, they've, they've done really well. And that's a city that is, been contending obviously with deindustrialization it was a steel center for you know 
for its existence. Um, but there we're are gonna, other, yeah, there are other places. Uh, yeah. I was say, we, we, we're hoping to visit uh, Baltimore. Uh, I think we're looking at September now, guys, oh, wow. um, to rec- record season five of our, of our show. And um, Carolyn Younts and the guys from the Ella Thompson Fund. And we'll, we'll talk about Ella Thompson Fund later on because that was a big sure. part of the reason Thank why you. we're here and the, and the stuff we're doing here. I'll get here um, before, get here before um, the end of September and you, go, you can go to a baseball game. Oh, Orioles, of course. <laughs> Yeah. That's 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 a deal, and we need to sort that out, guys. Um, but yeah, we we need we need, we Baltimore's you know true to our hearts, so it's, it's good to hear how it compares to the other cities. Um, we have our problems right now, but um, you know that's um, I, I you know like it's hard. I, I I love the city. I live here. I'm vested in it, but I gotta say um, we've made some mistakes. Okay, well, guys, that's the end of the first part. Um, if you're listening to this in the main feed, you can do one or two things. You can wait one week in the same feed. Um, try like Amazon Music. Come back to there. If you're not using Amazon Music for a start, that's a great place to try your podcast. Um, and the part two will appear for you magically uh, in a week's time. Or, Dave, what, what can I do, Dave? <laughs> well, this is what you could win. Uh, the, the part two is actually available right now for our uh, lovely patrons over at patreon.com forward slash the wire stripped and uh, uh, as you'll have heard from um, from from David uh, you know we support the Ella Thompson fund over there which is a um, a charity in Baltimore which helps um, underprivileged youths and has been going a long time and it's been supported uh, by David Simon and the wire crew for a long time and everything we uh, we earn over there goes to the Ella Thompson Fund. Yeah, 100% of it goes to the Ella Thompson Fund. So you're not paying for our wages or mortgages or our our aperitifs or our caviar. Um, <laughs> we pay for our own caviar. Yeah. Please send us caviar. <laughs> but yeah, seriously, yeah, yeah. If you want to listen to it right now, head to uh, www.patreon.com forward slash the wire strip so you can listen to um, part one. Sorry part one which is well now we can listen to again you can listen to part two and also you can listen to part three which is only ever going to be for patrons so you get the triple whammy if you go right there right now um and again thank you david for your time it's been it's been it was emotional oh and uh, and another thing uh, david uh, was uh, kind enough to um um, get some goodies together, some wire some, goodies, some goodies and some others. Yeah, some merch, some, some cool merch. It's just a lot of signed uh, good stuff, memorabilia, that kind of thing. And it's all up for auction, um, which we are going to share the details um, of on our social pages very shortly. So watch this space at The Wire Stripped on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Um, and all of the proceeds from that auction are going to go to the Ella Thompson Fund. So watch that space. Yeah. Also, watch out for David Simon's Twitter a, at AO Despair, um, and follow him and follow us if you're not doing so already, and tell your friends too as well. You just heard a stripped media production.